0: Welcome again tonight. Thank you for being here. We're grateful for your presence. Uh, didn't expect the rain, but I guess we needed it. Uh, Friday night I was speaking in Middle Tennessee, and when I went in the building, it was beautiful outside. And at the conclusion of the evening, the preacher got up and was talking to some of the members that had left their car windows down, and he said, I hate to tell you this, but your seats are wet. And I thought, he's got to be kidding. There's no way it rained, but uh, it did. And so, anyway, we're glad to have rain, refreshing rain, also thankful for the sunshine. Thank you for being here tonight. We appreciate so much you being here. We hope and pray that what we studied together tonight will benefit you. In our study tonight, we're going to be talking about an individual in Scripture of which very little is known. His name is Melchizedek. And so we're going to continue our study of some of the great characters of Scripture. And tonight we're going to be focusing on this man named Melchizedek, who was both a king and a priest, a priest of the Most High God. And so when you look at the Scriptures, it seems to me, it seems apparent that Melchizedek was a type, of Christ And Jesus, of course, as you well know, came as prophet, priest, and king. And so we're going to explore that subject in just a moment or two. I want to call your attention, first of all, to Hebrews chapter 4. And as we think about our lesson tonight, there is so much information with regard to the priesthood. And tonight, what I really want to emphasize is our great high priest, and that's Jesus. And so everything that we're talking about is going to point back to Jesus, the Son of God. And so you remember in chapter 3, let me just very quickly maybe bring us up to date. The Hebrew writer is addressing Christians that have come out of Judaism. Many of these Hebrew Christians had become bewildered. Some, sadly, were going back to the Law of Moses and all of the things that pertain to the law, the sacrifices, the priesthood, etc. So what the writer of Hebrews is trying to say to those in the first century is that Jesus is our great high priest. As a matter of fact, in chapter 3, at verse 1, he identifies Jesus as our apostle and high priest. And then in chapter 8, you remember the writer there somewhat of a summation or thesis statement of the book. He said, the sum of the things that we have been talking about. We have such a great high priest. We have a high priest who is now seated at the right hand of the majesty in the heavens. And that'd be Jesus. So I want to call your attention to chapter 4, and we're going to look at verse 14. And I want you to think about the setting here and what the writer is saying about our great high priest. The priest that we're talking about is not from the tribe of Levi. He is not a descendant of Aaron. And so with that in mind, look at chapter 4, verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest, now listen to this, who has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Now, let's just pause there for a minute. When the writer penned these words, directed by the Holy Spirit, at this point in time, the temple in Jerusalem was still standing. And the high priest was still functioning in his priestly capacity. He was offering regularly animal sacrifices. But what the writer here is saying is that now we have a greater high priest, far superior to the Mosaic priesthood, that is, those who descended from Aaron and the tribe of Levi. Our high priest is in heaven. Now, what was the purpose of a priest? The priest, now in chapter 5, verse 1, the writer's going to say that One of the functions of a priest was to offer gifts and sacrifices. And of course Jesus did that. But a priest was to make intercession between the people and God. You think about the holiness of God. In order for us to approach a holy God in heaven, we have to have a high priest, don't we? And you remember in Romans chapter 8 when the Apostle Paul there deals with the redemptive plan of God. He stresses the fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead. He is now seated at the Father's right hand. And Paul said, who also makes intercession for us. So the Lord Jesus Christ is functioning on our behalf regularly. Matter of fact, Paul would say in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that he serves as our mediator. He is our go-between, isn't he? Now with that in mind, note if you would what he says in verse 15. We do not have a high priest who cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities or with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, now listen to this, yet without sin. What a bold contrast between our great high priest Jesus and those who served as high priest under the Mosaic Dispensation. For example, Aaron and those who followed him. They were human beings, fallible human beings. They didn't have the ability to rise above sin, and yet our great high priest is sinless. And he has the ability to empathize, sympathize with us, doesn't he? Now look at verse 16. In light of that, the writer said, Let us therefore come boldly or draw boldly to the throne of grace we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So number one, to understand, our great high priest has been ordained by God. Now if you and I were to go back and look at the Old Testament, you remember God chose Abraham in the long ago to become the father of the Hebrew nation. And God's people dwelt in Egypt for some 400 years, after which God delivered them out of captivity or out of Egyptian bondage. And then God established a law. We have the first five books of the Old Testament that detail the ordinances of the law. Inherent in that law was the priesthood. Now Moses became the leader and lawgiver of ancient Israel, didn't he? God then ordained a man by the name of Aaron to serve as the first high priest. Now, you need to understand, Aaron didn't come up with the idea that since you have a job, Moses, I think I'll just become the high priest. That wasn't how that operated. Matter of fact, look at chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. He said, Every high priest taken from among men is appointed or ordained for men in things pertaining to God. Why? That he might offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Now, drop down and look at verse 4. No man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, now listen to this, even as Aaron was. what's, What's the writer here saying? What's the point? That Aaron didn't decide that he would become the great high priest on behalf of the nation of Israel. But rather God in heaven ordained this work or this role, didn't He? And then he had later successors. So with that in mind, what about the priesthood, the great high priest of Christ? Jesus became our great high priest because that was the will of God the Father. Look at verse 5. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, listen to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. He also says in another place, and now he quotes David in Psalm 110. And David there is looking toward the distant future in which the Christ would come and assume assume a priestly role after the order of a fellow by the name of Melchizedek. And the name Melchizedek means, my king is righteous. Who does that remind you of? Jesus Melchizedek was both a king and a priest. Jesus functions in both capacities. So now look at verse 7. He's talking about Christ, who in the days of His flesh, when He had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to Him who was able to save Him from death, and was heard because of His godly fear. Though He was a son, yet He learned obedience by the things which He suffered. And having been perfected or made complete, the text says He became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey Him. And then verse 10, called by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So number one, to understand that our great high priest, the one who is functioning on our behalf, is in heaven. He's not in Jerusalem. He's not serving us on planet Earth. but Rather, He is in heaven at the right hand of Almighty God, and He is constantly interceding on our behalf. Now, there's a second thing I want to call your attention to. It has to do with the fact that our great high priest is after the order of Melchizedek. So I want you to turn now to chapter 7. In chapter 7 we have a little bit more detail given about Melchizedek. Now, in the Old Testament, you go back to Genesis chapter 14. You remember Lot and Abraham strife had developed between their herdsmen. And so Abraham allowed Lot to decide which way he wanted to go, the choice of the land as we would say. And he chose the well plains or the well-watered plains of the Jordan. And in chapter 14 The text tells us that Lot was invaded by some kings in Sodom, taken captive. And so Abraham went after him, rescued him. Following that event, Moses tells us that Abraham was met by this man named Melchizedek, who was a priest of the Most High God and King of Salem. Now many people believe that Salem was a reference to Jerusalem. So you have the Hebrew writer saying over in chapter 7 that the lesser was blessed by the greater. Or rather, the greater was blessed by the less. But the point is that Abraham gave tithes, or blessed, Melchizedek. Now with that in mind, look at chapter 7 again. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, "...whom met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all." First being translated, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. Now look at verse 3. "...without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest forever." Melchizedek, like Jesus, had no predecessor, nor did he have a successor. So he became, as we would say, a type of the Christ. Jesus came to do what? To serve as our priest and king. And he functions in that capacity today. Now, when the writer there talks about Melchizedek, without father, without mother, he's not saying that he didn't have a mother or father. I don't think that's the point. I think what he's saying is that he did not, he did not, come from any type of priestly line like Aaron the tribe of Levi and you remember back in Deuteronomy chapter 10 God had set apart the tribe of Levi to do what the function in the temple the tabernacle on behalf of Almighty God and so that being said I want to just call attention to something Here's a man that was a king and a priest. If you go back to the Old Testament, you have the lineage of the kings, primarily coming forth from the tribe of Judah, right? And then you have the lineage of the priesthood. The The priest came through Levi, the Levitical tribe. Never did you have or never were you to have had those two lines mingling In their service. In other words, the king had his job, the priest had his job. Well, turn back with me, if you would, to the book of 2 Chronicles, chapter 26. I want you to see something here. Melchizedek was a priest and he was a king. The law, of course, You remember the law was given and God had told Moses in the long ago there's going to come a time when your people are going to want a king in Deuteronomy chapter 17 and he outlined the behavior of the king and some of the things that would help the king to remain humble and to perform his duties. One of the things was he was to take a copy of the law and he was to live by that law and read it, meditate it day and night. So back in the book of 2 Chronicles chapter 26 we have a fellow who comes along who is a king His name is Uzziah. Uzziah has the idea that he wants to enter into the temple and burn incense. Well, whose job is that? That's right, that wasn't his job. So listen to what the text says in verse 16. The Bible says concerning Uzziah, when he was strong, his heart was lifted up. To his destruction, in other words, pride became a thorn in his side. For he transgressed against the Lord his God by entering the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Who had the responsibility of burning incense in the temple? Wasn't a king. The priest. So here you have a king overstepping his boundaries. And the point, I think, is that when it comes to the work Of Almighty God there are certain responsibilities entrusted to people and we're not to cross those boundaries are we there's some application for that and I'll mention that in a moment so look at verse 17 Azariah the high priest he goes in after Uzziah and with him the text says there were 80 priests of the Lord who were valiant men now look at verse 18 and they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord. Now listen, but for the priest, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense, they were the ones that had that divine responsibility. So they said, Get out of the sanctuary, for you have trespassed. You have no honor from the Lord God. So the priest. Azariah and the others who were with him, they caught his hand, ran him out of the temple. Now look at verse 19. In verse 19 the Bible says that Uzziah became furious and he had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And while he was angry with the priest, now listen to this, leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priest in the house of the Lord beside the incense altar. Now Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and there on his forehead he was leprous. So they thrust him out of that place. Indeed, he also hurried to get out, because the Lord had struck him. Now, this man died a leper, didn't he? What then was the problem? Uzziah took it upon himself presumptuously to enter the temple and to burn incense. He didn't have that right. That wasn't His duty. That wasn't His responsibility. So when God articulates in His Word certain responsibilities for those of us in the body of Christ, it's not up to us to say, you know what, I think we'll do it this way. Really, the question ought to be, and I think that this is a great example right here, of Bible authority. You know, one of the questions that we ought to ask whenever we engage in something is this, what does the Bible say? Now there are a lot of folks in the world today, and sadly there are some in the church, they do not think like that. And there are some, like Uzziah, who have this idea, I want to do it, I like it, and so guess what, I'm going to do it. That's not how we're to do things. And when we talk about the authority of Scripture, this is a tremendous example of the authority of Almighty God in the realm of worship, isn't it? Uzziah got himself in grave trouble because he violated the will of Almighty God. Now, with that in mind, let's go back to Hebrews chapter 7 again. In the seventh chapter of the book of Hebrews, again, Melchizedek was a priest and a king. Well, how then does that relate to Jesus? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. Let me just call your attention for a moment to the book of Zechariah. In the book of Zechariah chapter 6, listen to what Zechariah said about the coming of the Messiah, the Christ. In verse 12, Zechariah said, Behold the man whose name is the branch. From his place he shall branch out and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Now you remember back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God had told David, David wanted to build him a temple, and he got the go-ahead from Nathan. Nathan went before God, and God said, no, that's not going to happen. And so God then told David, look, once you have deceased, I'm going to set up your seed after you. In other words, Your seed line is going to bring someone into the world who will establish His kingdom. That points to Jesus. And so now look, if you would, at verse 13. In verse 13, Zechariah said, Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the glory. Now listen to this. And he shall sit and rule on his throne. Does that remind you of anybody? In Acts chapter 2, when we read of Jesus... Being exalted to the right hand of God, sitting upon whose throne? David's throne. It is a spiritual throne. And so Zechariah, looking down into time, some 500 years before the coming of the Christ, sees Jesus sitting upon His throne and ruling as a king. But not just as a king. But listen to this. So he shall be a priest on his throne. So now the Messiah is not going to just be a king. He's also going to function as a priest. Well, the Mosaic dispensation. What tribe did you have to come from in order to serve as a priest? Tribe of Levi. So here's my question. Could Jesus legitimately serve as priest under that dispensation of time? Yes or no? No, we couldn't, could he? Why? Wrong tribe. So with that in mind, look now again at Hebrews chapter 7. Listen to what the writer says. In Hebrews chapter 7, beginning in verse 11, the writer said, Therefore if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek? and not be called according to the order of Aaron. Now, for the priesthood being changed, there must also of necessity be the change of the law. In other words, Jesus could not authoritatively function as a priest on earth. Why? Wrong tribe. Couldn't function as a priest at all. But, The writer here tells us the priesthood being changed, there was a necessity, also a change of the law. Now look at verse 14. It is evident our Lord sprang or arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 8, when God set apart the tribe of Levi, He didn't have to enumerate all those other tribes. Why? Because only one tribe had the ability or the responsibility of functioning in that capacity. So in order for Jesus to serve as our priest, there had to be a change of the law. What law? Well, in Hebrews chapter 8, the writer there points to this new dispensation in time. Jesus now functioning as our great high priest. We live today under a better covenant, founded upon better promises, according to chapter 8. So Jesus is serving as a priest on our behalf and not just a priest, but also a king. He is identified as the King of kings and Lord of lords. In Acts chapter 2, when the apostle Peter, we have a record of his lesson, he went all the way back to David, talked about the fact that through the loins, through the lineage of David, that God would raise up the Christ to sit on His throne. And he foretold of the resurrection of Christ that his soul wouldn't be left in Hades, neither would his flesh see corruption. And Peter said, this Jesus whom God raised up, we are all of of witnesses, or we are all witnesses. Then down in verse 36, he would say, let all the house of Israel know assuredly, this same Jesus whom God's crucified, he's made both Lord and Christ. So, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, functions on our behalf regularly as a priest and as a king. And the fact that He is the Anointed One, the Christ, He is the Lord of all lords, the King of all kings. And by the way, let me just add this very quickly. Going back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12, 13, and 14, you have the promise made concerning the coming of the Messiah and the establishment of His kingdom. Isaiah talked about it in Isaiah chapter 2. Daniel foretold of it in chapter 2. When John the Baptist began preaching, he talked about the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus began his ministry, he too echoed those same sentiments in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. Everything pointing to the coming of a kingdom. It is a spiritual kingdom. And Jesus is now reigning and ruling over that kingdom. It's not a kingdom to come. It's here already. You remember in Mark chapter 9, verse 1, Jesus said, Verily I say to you, there are some of you standing here who shall not taste death till you see the kingdom of God, come with power. Do we have a record in the New Testament of the kingdom coming with power? Yes, we do. You remember Acts chapter 1, verse 8? Prior to the ascension of Jesus, He told them that they would be endowed with power from on high. In Luke chapter 24, verse 49, they were to tarry in Jerusalem for that very purpose. And then He said in chapter 1, verse 8 of Acts, the Holy Spirit would come upon them and they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. Chapter 2 What do you have? The apostles receiving the baptismal measure of the Holy Spirit. The church is off and running. And so Jesus has established his kingdom. And what did he use to establish that kingdom? His blood, didn't he? So that brings us to another, I think, very important point. Our great high priest offered sacrifice. Today he serves as our high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. He is the antitype of that. But what about all of those Old Testament sacrifices? Matter of fact you could go back and look at every dispensation of time. And what do you read in the period of the patriarchs? You read priesthood don't you? You Remember Job? In Job chapter 1 when he offered sacrifices on behalf of his children? We can read of Abraham offering sacrifices, Noah offering sacrifices. Then you come to the law of Moses and you have the tribe of Levi and their functions. Aaron, the great high priest. In in the book of uh, Leviticus, a lot of emphasis is given to the holiness of God and the sacrifices that were offered. So here's a question. All of those Old Testament sacrifices that were offered, whether it be under the period of the patriarchs, the Mosaic Dispensation, did they have the ability to deal effectively with the problem of sin, yes or no? No. Well, how do we know that? Well, number one, because they had a problem with sin too, didn't they? That is, those who offered those sacrifices, they were fallible people. And they're offering the blood of bulls and goats, and the Bible tells us that the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. It took Jesus Christ, the Son of God, coming and giving His life as a ransom for sin. So with that in mind, look at chapter 7. and Drop down and note, if you would, in verse 24, very quickly, for the sake of time. The Bible says concerning the Christ, because He continues forever, He has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He ever lives to make intercession for us, which is what a priest does. For such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. Now listen to this, verse 27. Who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, as those... He does not need daily to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. Now having said that, turn over to chapter 10 very quickly. In chapter 10, the writer here talks about the shadow of the law and the fact that the Old Testament law was types and shadows pointing to the coming of the Christ and the absolute forgiveness that we would enjoy through Christ and the shedding of His blood. And you remember in verse 2, he raises a question. If those Old Testament sacrifices were sufficient, then why continue with them? But look at verse 3. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. Not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, when he came into the world, now he's talking about Christ, the Son of God. When he came into the world, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, a quotation from Psalm 40, and Here's the Christ, Behold, I come. In the volume of the book it is written to me to do your will, O God. Okay, what was the will of Almighty God? That Jesus give His life as a ransom for sin. What was it the Hebrew writer said over in Hebrews chapter 5 at verse 1? That those who served as priests offered both gifts and sacrifices. And so in verse, drop down if you would, look at verse 8. Previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I've come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. By that will, listen to this, we have been, listen to this again, by that will we have been, sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, talking about Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sin, sat down at the right hand of God. Now, just very quickly in closing, you remember the great day of atonement? What an important day that was in the history of the Israelite nation. On that day, the high priest had the opportunity to go into the presence of Almighty God. And he did so and made sin offerings, not only for the people, but for himself and his family members. And then he would take a scapegoat and place his hands on the head of that scapegoat, confessing the sins of the people. And then they would take that scapegoat out into the wilderness by the hand of a fit man, according to Moses, signifying the removal of sin from the presence of the camp of Israel. In that text, what you have was ultimately accomplished through whom? Through Jesus. You had a picture of the Christ. Here is the high priest. He's going in. He's offering sacrifice. He is removing. They are signifying the removal of sin with the ushering out of that scapegoat on whose head sins had been confessed. When Jesus went to Calvary, shed His blood, made it possible for us to enjoy forgiveness in the most absolute sense of the word. Furthermore, once that sin has been eradicated, washed away, we never again meet it. Unlike those Old Testament sacrifices where the writer said there was a remembrance of sin made every year. So they're enjoying forgiveness, in anticipation of the coming of the Messiah, the Christ, we enjoy forgiveness based upon the shed blood of Christ. And that forgiveness has been made possible where? The cross of Calvary. And so, Melchizedek, an interesting study. Really don't feel like I've done it justice tonight. Just a lot of information, a lot to cover. But I do thank you for your attention. Thank you for being here tonight. And I want to close by saying we all have one common need. That common need is the blood of Jesus. And if you go all the way back before time began, you hear John echoing these words, that Jesus was the Lamb of God slain for the sins of the human family. That's what John talks about in Revelation chapter 13. The the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. When Jesus came to earth, you remember what John the Baptist said about Him? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus identified as our sacrificial Lamb. He is also spoken of as our Passover Lamb. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. We need the blood of Christ, without which... We can't be saved. So how do you contact that blood? Well, you've got to go where it was shed. It was shed in death, John 19, 34 and 35. So when you're baptized into Christ, and baptism is just one part of the equation, we've got to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. We've got to be willing to repent, confess the fact that Christ is who He claimed to be, the Son of God, and then be baptized. We contact the blood of Christ, add it to the body of Christ, and we live for Him day in and day out. Faithful until death. If you're here tonight, maybe your life's not what it ought to be. You need to be back in fellowship with God and His people. Listen, it would be our honor to pray with you and for you tonight. And God, who is a God of mercy, compassion, and grace, will abundantly pardon. Won't you come as we stand and sing?